why don't you turn in your Bibles uh, to Luke chapter 1, verse 26, and uh, as you flip there, let's go ahead and stand, and we're going to read a couple select passages from the gospel accounts of Jesus' birth. Everybody's there, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. It says, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at this saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now flip over a chapter to chapter 2, and we're going to look at verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was, while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In the inn. Now, there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. You can go ahead and be seated. Lord God, we pray over this time in your word. We pray that as we look at the first advent, the first coming of your son, uh, Lord, just I'm, I am astounded this morning just having studied and, and having, having taking special time to ponder and meditate upon the incarnation, that God himself would be draped in flesh and um, Lord, my heart's just overflowing with gratitude and wonder. And, and Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring that same heart to each person in this room and that that heart would produce um, just a humble, uh, a humble heart, a, a humility that would bow the knee and yield to an incredible God 
and an incredible Savior. Let your Holy Spirit speak forth today with power. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. The son sat next to his father the day before their departure. They sat there as if they were one, quietly contemplating the son's departure the next day. They had worked together side by side for as long as they could remember, forever. But in a few moments, that would change. The son would go out of his father's presence into a hostile world. If you're like me, you've had to wonder how much of a crazy thing it would be to go from the broad expanse of heaven to the cramped, confined quarters of a woman's womb, the womb of Mary. From being all-powerful and having, having every right and privilege of deity to having to depend upon the umbilical cord for survival. And as we read the Christmas story, we read of Jesus going from the throne to the womb, to the manger, to a cave out in a pasture, essentially, from the place of pure glory to a place of pure humility and humanity. As we read Luke chapter 1 and a portion of Luke chapter 2, we're actually not going to study from there today. I have a little surprise for you. Uh, I think it's hilarious. No, it's not. We're going to read from the book of Hebrews, actually. And you might be thinking to yourself, Hebrews, um, not recalling a Christmas story in the book of Hebrews. Um, well, turn to chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews. We're going to look at verse 5. And, and this last uh, February, I was over in Corvallis, and I was teaching the book of Hebrews. Uh, I did the whole book in eight hours. And as I was going through chapter 10, I found this incredible passage, and I thought to myself, I'm not going to do it, so, okay, uh, this, this is what you're to teach on uh, at Christmas time. So this is something that's been simmering in my crock pot uh, for the last uh, many months, and uh, I'm excited to look at it with you today. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, it says, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book it was written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Believe it or not, this Hebrews text takes us behind the scenes of what was going on at Bethlehem. And as you've read the gospel accounts over the last many years, you know the cast of characters well. You know Joseph and Mary. You know the wise men. You know King Herod. You know Anna and Simeon and Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary's cousin. Perhaps in past church Christmas Eve services, you've heard the perspective of every member of that cast for that Christmas Eve. Perhaps you've even heard the donkeys and the cows and the sheep's perspective, sheep's perspective, not knowing my plurals very well. But have you ever looked at Christmas through the viewpoint 
of Jesus himself. It's here in chapter 10 of Hebrews, verses 5 through 7, that we have Christmas according to Christ. And for those of you who are visiting Calvary Chapel of Crick County just this once, or perhaps it's your first time, I hope you find out today what we really are about as a church. In verse 5, we see Jesus, and we discover that he speaks for himself. In verse 5, we find the most dramatic scene in the Christmas story. It's a more dramatic scene than the angel Gabriel appearing there and shocking Mary in her bedroom, telling her that she, as a virgin, is going to have a baby in nine months' time. Here we have the final words of Jesus to the Father before he left his eternal home for his embryonic home. And as you look at verse 5, it says, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said. In the Greek, we have this coming, this coming into the world. And it refers to this period before his entrance into the world where it has been recognized the inefficiency of animal sacrifices for forgiveness of sins that has been proved through the law and through the prophets. This also refers to the time leading up through his youth and up into the beginning of his public minister, ministry, where he's been ripened as a human being in his resolution, where he intently devoted himself to doing his father's Will. There's three phrases that I want you to underline or highlight. Remember in your mind. The first phrase is a body you have prepared for me. All right? And, and think of Christmas time. Think of the incarnation. Think of God draping himself in flesh. The son stepping into a body that the father has prepared for him. The second phrase that I want to touch on this morning is that it's in the volume of the book. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. And the third phrase, I have come to do your will. All right, this all has very huge Christmas uh, meaning. But there is the word of warning. If you came here looking for sentimental treatment, uh, you may not get it. If you've come looking for a baby in a manger scene up here, you might not get it, but you will benefit from the study. But I, I suggest you roll up your sleeves and you, you tighten up your boots and you get ready to do a little bit of labor because we're going to go even deeper than a simple manger scenes. We're going to go into Bible prophecy. We're going to go into uh, the, the context of scripture and we're going to dig in deep to see how Jesus had a mission in the manger. Now, why would I take Jesus, or excuse me, why would I take these words from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, which were quoted from Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, and why would I apply them to Jesus? Why would I say that this is Jesus speaking, and specifically it's Jesus coming and speaking to the Father before he comes in the incarnation and dwells in flesh? Well, I hope you know this, even if you learn it today, that you let it sear into your heart and your mind. The whole Bible is a story about 
Jesus. All right? The whole Bible is a story about Jesus. So literally, you can take any passage in the scripture where there is a hero, where there is good, where there is redemption being done, and you can preach a Christmas message. Jesus did it for us. That's the Christmas message. That's the Hebrews message. That's the book of Samuel message. Jesus did it for us. What we couldn't do for ourselves in order to bring us as a lost people back into intimate communion and relationship with Christ for the glory of God. That is the story of the Bible. And it's on the lips of Jesus that we find the Psalm of David. Now, there are places in the Psalm where it's partially fulfilled in David where it's prophetically expressed, referring to Jesus's coming and fulfillment. There are places in the psalm where there was immediate and historic impact. And it was relevant there to David, but it points forward to Jesus. When David spoke it, it was a foreshadowing of Jesus, where ultimately the phrase was fulfilled. The Spirit puts into David's mouth The language, finding its partial application to David and its full realization in the divine son of David. As Alfred says, the more any son of man approaches the incarnate son of God in position or office or individual spiritual experience, the more directly may his holy breathings and the power of Christ's spirit be taken as utterances of Christ himself. Of all men, the prophet king of Israel resembled and foreshadowed him, Christ, the most. For Jesus to have these words on his lips was like Cinderella's foot slipping perfectly, fitting perfectly into the slipper. It was a perfect fit. You remember that the slipper didn't fit anybody else just right. Nor does the text of Psalm chapter 40, verse four through, uh, 6 through 8, or Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, nor does it fit anybody else but Jesus perfectly. Let's look at the phrase that we start out with. A body you have prepared for me. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Now, the writer of Hebrews was quoting the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was called the Septuagint. But the Psalms and the Hebrews, it goes even deeper than the, uh, uh, or excuse me, the, the Greek translation goes even deeper in that it says, you did fit for me a body. Your counsels, you determined to make for me a body to be given up to death as a sacrificial victim. That's how deep the language in the Greek goes. And and we've been given the Greek writings and the Hebrew writings and the Aramaic writings for great reasons in the inspiration of the scriptures. Because some are poetic or some get down deeper into the nitty gritty. And here the Greek translation goes down deep into the nitty gritty where the Hebrew may be more poetic. And in the nitty gritty, it goes so deep to say, you prepared for me a body. You fit it for me and you determined to make me a body to be given up to death as a sacrificial victim. 
Now, what does it say in the Hebrew? Well, if you're quick, you could flip back to the psalm and just, or you could just listen in Psalm 40, verse 6. It doesn't say a body you've prepared for me. Here's what it says in the Hebrew. It says, mine eyes you, or excuse me, my ears you have opened. Boy, I could totally see how you'd get from a body you've prepared for me, ears you have. What's incredible is as you look at this my ears you have opened, or my ears you have dug. Most uh, Bible scholars agree that this alludes to the custom of boring out the ear of a slave who volunteers to continue on as a slave, even though he has the right and the time has come for himself to be freed. You read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 15. He's called a bond servant, a willing servant. He takes it upon himself to stay with the master for the rest of his life. And so what is being alluded to in the Psalms, in the Hebrew, is that this servant will come to do the Father's will, to be a servant who will stick with the master even when he has every right to go his own way. It's virtually the same act of voluntary submission and service that the slave who suffers to have his ear bored out by his masters. You look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus himself likewise, shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So every man, every child has partaken of flesh and blood, and he willingly, as a servant, shared in the same so that he could destroy the devil who had the power of death. Now, the idea of Christ taking on this form and becoming obedient as a servant is implied. And as he assumes this body to which he's to make the self-sacrifice, we are encouraged in Romans chapter 12, as we've studied it as a church recently, that we too should offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable before God. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that is just a reasonable service in light of Jesus taking on himself a body and laying it down as a sacrifice for sins. We move on to verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 10, where it says, In burnt offerings and sacrifices and sin, for sin, you've had no pleasure. Now, this could be shocking to us at first read, but it doesn't suggest that the old sacrifices were wrong. In fact, didn't God command the sacrifices to be done in just such and such a way? Nor does it mean that sincere worshipers in the Old Testament received no benefit from obeying God's law. We know that there was benefit to obedience of the law. But what verse 6 means is that God has no delight in sacrifices that are apart from obedient hearts within the worshipers. No amount of sacrifice can substitute for obedience. As you read in 1 Samuel, I think it's chapter 10, when Saul is caught disobeying and he's hashing it out with uh, the prophet Samuel. And the Lord speaks through Samuel and says, the Lord doesn't want your sacrifice. He wants your obedience. 
And so in the whole Old Testament, the bulls that were offered up, the rams that were offered up, people would just offer them up, but their heart was never there. Their heart was never obedient. Some were. There was a small remnant. There were a few that's heart were obedient. But overall, they were disobedient, and they just wanted to, to get, the, get the rule down and get the regulation down and pay their due so they could just get back to living life the way they wanted to live it, even as idolaters. But these sacrifices alone cannot atone for sin. And so why did Jesus come and take on a body? Why did he become flesh? Why did he become a baby in a manger? Because sacrifices and offerings for sin that the people had been doing throughout the nation's history were not pleasing the Lord. And so it was time to enter in somebody that would please the Lord. And Galatians tells us when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law. Of all of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, the book of Hebrews explains to us, and you might just make a note that the book of Hebrews is the most Old Testament book out of all the New Testament books. And it's in the book of Hebrews that it's explained to us that God saw all of those sacrifices that would be done as a shadow of the reality to which they pointed. Every drop of blood that was shed for the covering of sins pointed towards the drops from the perfect spotless lamb who would come in the future. And when his blood was shed, it wouldn't just cover over sin. It would completely remove sin so much so that it would be forgotten. All of the Old Testament sacrifices involved the death of dumb animals. But the sacrifice of Jesus was the sacrifice of a consenting will. Remember that every time we read of the will in this Hebrews passage. Every other sacrifice was prodded to the altar and pulled with a halter and and prodded with a hot shot. You know, get up there. It's time to get your throat slit. Those animals didn't want to go. You know, there was no vote in this whole thing. The shepherds didn't show up and say, hey, who would like to go and be the sacrifice that will atone for the sins of your family? No sheep raised their hands. Instead, they went and they looked for which appeared to be the most spotless lamb and they would take it and appeared without blemish and they would take it and they would sacrifice it and the lamb had no say. In fact, you bet if you've ever done FFA or 4-H that there was a little bit of pulling going on. There was a little back pulling. There was a guy getting drugged across the pasture a time or two. These were not willing animals. And all of those unwilling animals were a foreshadowing of the great and ultimate and final and necessary saving sacrifice offered up in the body that we're celebrating this Christmas, in the body of the real spotless lamb of God, who John the Baptist says, takes away the sins of the whole world. And so, in Hebrews chapter 10, when you read the whole chapter, the emphasis of the altar is affirmed that the atonement of Jesus explains his incarnation and other sacrifices simply point to the best sacrifice. The whole theme of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the angels 
because he created the angels. Jesus is better than the angels because Jesus became a man and he can sympathize with us in our weakness. Jesus is better than, than uh, the great high priest because they would have to offer up sacrifices all the time, but Jesus offered himself up one time and it was good for all. It's also in the book of Hebrews that we see that Jesus is the true and better sacrifice because it also did not need to be offered continually for the covering of sin, but it was offered once for all for the taking away of sin. And so Jesus was born in the manger as a song my friend wrote from Corvallis. She wrote it, born to die that I might live. You took upon you all my sin. As you look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses one through four, the first four verses of this chapter, it says that the law having a shadow of the good things to come. Did you catch that? The law, the 10 commandments and the other 603 commandments, all of those laws and rules and rituals and regulations, they are all a shadow of the good things to come in Jesus and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. Listen to this. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. What the first four verses of this chapter tells us that is that if those sacrifices were good to go, then why did they keep offering them? And the very fact that they continued year after year to offer them shows us that they were not good enough. They were the foreshadowing of the one who would be good enough. And remember that verse four, it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. That's not possible. Well, good, you say, because I'm not planning on going and slaughtering anything uh, this Christmas time. All right, no, the, the problem is, is that we fall into the same thing. We might not go and slaughter something, but we try to bring some kind of religious token to God as if we'd sacrifice something, and we hope that that'll be enough. If that could just appease the Lord, I'll be good. So I'm going to come to the Christmas service. I'm going to go to the Easter service. You know, I'm going to really sing that hymn loud. And yet the blood of bulls and goats can't take away your sin. Neither can your religious zeal. Even if you tried your darndest to keep the law, you'd, you'd fail. And every time you'd turn a corner, you'd be reminded of that sin that you did. And your conscience would speak up. And a red light would go on in the back of your head. And you'd start sweating. And your conscience comes back to put that conviction upon you. And so you go back the next big holiday. Or you go back even to the next event. Or you go to whatever. And you try to bring something again that will appease the Lord. I'll bring a really big check to the church this year. You know, or I'll really come and I'll sit in the front row of this Christmas service, whatever. And you forget the blood of bulls and goats. It's impossible. As Romans tells us, by the deeds of the law, by the deeds of works, no flesh will be justified. And your conscience is telling you that. But good news 
in the person and work of Jesus that began before the manger scene, your atonement was being worked out. Your atonement was being paid for. And the process had begun when God finally said, it's time. I've prepared a body for you. And in the fullness of the time, Christ came so that there would be more than a measure of ceremonial cleansing that might happen at a New Year's Eve or Christmas service. But rather, there'd be actually, as Hebrews tells us, the cleansing of the conscience. As Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 says, every priest would stand ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices but it would never take away sin. Are you here today? And you know what, what's being said here? Maybe you're getting it for the first time today. You're understanding that no amount of religious zeal and work on your behalf has ever cleansed that hole in your heart, that conscience, that red light that goes on, that shock wave. When you cross and you go around that corner, you see that place that you visited that you shouldn't have visited. Or you did this, or you did that, and you just want to atone for it. You just want to tell me something I can do so I can do it and be done with it. Hear this. You can't do it. You can never do it. So someone was sent who did it and is done with it. And by faith in him, his perfection is placed upon you. And all of your failing is placed upon him. So the significance of this body that's been prepared for Jesus is spoken of in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. It says that he himself bore our sins on his own body on the tree. Who doesn't look at a manger scene and look at those hands of that baby, and we know it's not really Jesus, but think there was a baby once whose hands were destined to be pierced to a tree, whose back was destined to be broken open by a Roman cat of nine tails, a Roman phlegorum, whose face was destined to have its beard ripped out, a baby whose body was destined to bear our sins on that body, on that tree, so that we, having died to sin, might live to righteousness. By that baby's stripes, by that man's stripes, we are healed. By that body taking on whip lashings, we are healed, quoting Isaiah 53. Jesus does finally and perfectly and once and for all what is necessary for sinners if they're going to enter into eternal fellowship with God. Did you guys know that? Did you know that it's been done in Jesus? That in Jesus, it's as if God's arms were reaching out to us to give us, and I don't mean to be cheesy, but to give us a big hug. Fellowship restored with God whom we have offended. That God demonstrates his love in arms wide open on the cross as if kneeling like a dad saying, come here, kids, I want to give you the biggest hug I've ever given you. I want to show you I love you. It's been demonstrated on the cross. And you might say, I don't care. I'm not a big hugger. You know, I'm not really interested in that. 
Well, let me tell you this. You should be interested in the hugs of God. You should be interested in the demonstration of God's love towards you. Why? Because you have been alienated from him by your sin. Your sin has put a Berlin wall between you and God and fellowship has ceased between you and him. He does not hear your prayers. Your prayers have put a dividing wall between him. If you regard sin in your heart and you blaspheme his son by disobeying him and rebelling against him, the heavens are brass. But that wall, that barrier is brought down in Jesus Christ. And if you'll put your faith in him today, you won't perish, but you'll have everlasting life and fellowship. That's brotherhood. That's communion. That's, that's real getting together with God. It'll be restored. And whenever you feel alienated, whenever you feel lonely, whenever you feel like the outcast, it's also a foreshadowing of the great outcast, your alienation from God. That until you humble yourself, You need to know that God is angry with your sin. There's a two-way animosity going on. You're angry at God. God is angry at you. And between you is a big, insurmountable chasm, a barrier. So those of you that are passing through, and, and this is your one Sunday here, hope you know what we're all about here. We're all about Jesus and his finished work and the atonement, and how precious his body is. And that on your part, there's nothing you can do to ignore your sin or cover it up with a religious ritual or a paying of a fee or a singing of a hymn or by zeal or effort or ho-humming along because your heart is separated from God. You don't even know if God loves you or if God hates you. And because you don't know if God even likes you, you sit here and these words are up on the screen and you don't get it. Yeah, you understand the grammatical structure of the words being put together and, and you understand the melody of the song, but it hasn't hit home to your heart as you read the words on the screen. It's because there's a barrier. The Holy Spirit has come today to knock on the door on your heart and to say, be reconciled to me. Be reconciled that that barrier could be brought down, that we could be the friends of God once again. One man said, the wonder of what God has done in the body of God, excuse me, in the body God prepared for Jesus, he declares his love for sinners. The wonder that God has done. In the body he has prepared, he declares his love through Jesus. So know this, he has done in Christ, in this body he prepared for him, what we could never do for ourselves. One man once said that the door to the manger is low, and the only way to get in is to stoop and to kneel. As the Christmas hymn goes, come to Bethlehem and see Christ whose birth the angels sing. Come adore on bended knee, Christ the Lord, the newborn King. How right that we could come to Christ on bended knee in humility because there's one thing that keeps us from that place. There's one thing that keeps us from fellowship restored from the Berlin Wall coming down from that chasm, having a bridge that we could cross it to Christ. There's one thing, and that's our pride. 
and your pride right now has invited into your mind an attorney that will come and defend you as you hear this message, don't listen to that attorney. You are guilty, but the price has been paid for your freedom. So come and adore on bended knee the Christ. That means the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord, the newborn King. In verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 10, it says, Then I said, Behold, I have come. I have come to do your will. The New Testament is chock full of the reason that Jesus has come and what the will of the Lord is. And quickly, I'm just going to read it. Uh, Matthew 5.17 says that I did not come to destroy the law of the prophets, but to fulfill the law. And John, Jesus says, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And the will of him who sent me is that I should lose nothing that was given to me but that I should raise it up on the last day. John 10 says, I've come that they might have life and that they might have life more abundantly. You remember this when you think of the incarnation. You remember this this Christmas when you celebrate this Jesus being born. Matthew and Luke both say that the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. I've come to do your will. His will is that the lost would be saved. 1 Timothy 1.15 says that Christ came in the world to save sinners. Luke chapter 9 says that the Son of Man didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Think about that in, in Jesus. He didn't come to destroy your life. He came to save your life. Matthew 20.28 20, says that Jesus didn't even come to be served but to be a servant and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew, or excuse me, John 12, 46, Jesus says, I've come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me would not abide in darkness. Are you abiding in darkness right now? Is your life marked by darkness and disobedience to the word of God? Come to Jesus, the light of the world. Let him illuminate your life and drive the darkness away. In John 18, Jesus says, for this cause I was born. Christmas message. This is why I was born. This is why I've come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. One man said, his name was Bengal. He said, see, reader, that thy savior obtain what he aimed at. In thy case. I want to say that again. See, reader, that thy Savior obtain what he aimed at in thy case. In your case, that, that Jesus will have come, not to destroy you, but to save you. That he would have come to drive the darkness away. That he would have come to fulfill the law on your behalf. Here, listener, and see that the cause that Jesus was born, these causes that I listed, be fulfilled in your case. And today they can be fulfilled in an instant. When you put your trust in Jesus, your faith in Jesus, when you rest in Jesus. Have you ever rested? Have you ever rested in Christ? I've come. I've got a body. I'm real, Jesus says. 
I've come to do the will of God and to do the will of God in you. In 7, Hebrews 10, 7 also says that in the volume of the book, it's written of me. And then there's these brackets, there's these dashes, there's these lines where it says, in the volume of the book, it's written of me, dash, to do your will, O God, dash. It's like parentheses. That's an explanation statement. In the book, it's written of me to do your will. I'm explaining. This is Jesus speaking before he comes and drapes himself in flesh, before he becomes a man. It's been written of me. I've come to do your will. In the volume of the book, literally the roll, this parchment manuscript that was wrapped around a cylinder and was headed with knobs. In the volume of the book, literally the 40th Psalm, verses 6 through 8, it was written of Jesus that he would come to do the will. Yes, Jesus didn't arrive out of nowhere. It was all planned. It was all spoken of in the Old Testament. It's all about Jesus. When we take our eyes off of Jesus, when we read the Old Testament, we get nowhere. And when our eyes get off of Jesus, we can make the Bible say all kinds of things, taking verses out of context. Because we forget it's not about us, it's about Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus begins his public ministry by going into a Galilean synagogue. And he stands up and he opens up the scroll and he reads out of the book of Isaiah. And he reads about the Messiah, that the spirit of the Lord is upon me, upon this body, upon this man. He's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, to set the captives free, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to release every bond, set people free from their sins. And then he rolls the scroll back up and he goes and he sits down and everybody's looking at him like, what just happened here? And he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's all been about Jesus. Isaiah chapter 64 was about Jesus and Jesus says that. In John chapter 5, when Jesus says, you search the scriptures to the Pharisees, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. Jesus didn't just pop out of nowhere. He had a purpose. He was prophesied of. And the very scriptures that even you have read your whole life, they're about Jesus. And they were written that you could have life. But how about you? Is what Jesus said to the Pharisees true of you here today as well? As he says, you are not willing to come to me that you might have life? John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus. And when Jesus came onto the scene and he started getting his disciples, in John chapter 1, we read of Philip and Nathaniel, a couple of his disciples that said, uh, he, he, Philip says to Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But even Philip knew Moses and the prophets wrote about this guy, this guy who's come in flesh, this guy that was born in a manger in a, in a cave, literally outside of Bethlehem. Moses wrote about this guy. Micah prophesied that that he would be born in Bethlehem. In John chapter 5, verse 45, he tells the Pharisees again that there is one who accuses you. It's Moses in whom you trust. 
And if you believe in Moses, then you'll believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, kind of jumped, Rory. You kind of went from like, you gave me a body to I've been prophesied of in the scriptures. Well, that's the context of what we're reading here today. But this isn't just marginal, enlightening theology for you today. This is foundational to a discovery of who Jesus is. This is foundational as you read the birth of Jesus. Who is this little baby? He's the little baby that every law and every prophet pointed to. And to some extent or another, this whole Western world has been focusing on this time for the last four or five weeks since before Thanksgiving. Singing songs and reading stories and beginning to focus on this Advent or this day, this this holiday. And yet many of them, as they sing the songs or read the stories or write the articles and read the articles, apparently have very little reference to Jesus' own self-disclosure. This is who I am, and this is why I come. When Jesus had resurrected, he's walking on the road to Emmaus, and he's walking with two guys, and, and these guys are bummed out. They're, they're his disciples, and they tell him, uh, they don't know it's Jesus yet, and they tell him, we are so bummed out because our Lord was crucified a few days ago, and now uh, you know, his body has disappeared, and we don't know where he is, and we don't know what to do. We don't know what's going on. Excuse me. And so Jesus, as he speaks to them, he says, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning who? Himself. What an awesome Bible study to be a part of. As Jesus walks through the whole Old Testament and shows these guys, see this? That's that's me. And this guy? That's me. And this? That's me. It points to me. Points to me. I fulfilled that. I fulfilled that. I fulfilled that. I'm going to fulfill that. Just wait. I'm coming back. It's all about me. When Christ came into the world, he said, a body you have prepared for me. Here I am, a real person. When Christ came into the world, he says, it's written about me in the scroll. If you'll read what is written, you'll meet me, is what he says. If you read Moses or the Psalms or the prophets. Later on in that same passage, the Luke passage, to those on the road to Emmaus or to the disciples, Jesus appears and he says, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. May the Holy Spirit do that to you today and and myself. Open up our understanding to comprehend the scriptures and to see how it all points to Jesus. Very quickly, you guys know the story in Acts chapter eight, when Philip is told to go down to the desert And he goes down there and he sees a chariot of an Ethiopian eunuch, treasurer of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. And the Lord tells him, go and run and overtake that chariot. And so he ran and he overtook the chariot and he finds that this eunuch is reading out of the book of Isaiah chapter 53. And as he's there on the running boards, you know, going along through the desert with his head popped in the window, he says, do you understand what you're reading? And this eunuch says, how can I unless someone guides me? 
How can I unless someone guides me? John Calvin said, what a wonderful man this is who freely and frankly acknowledges his weakness in contrast with a person who is swollen-headed with confidence in his own abilities. That is why the reading of Scripture bears fruit with so few people today because scarcely one in a hundred is to be found who gladly submit themselves to the teaching. And I hope that's not true. Maybe we have a hundred here. That means maybe one person here is submitting themselves to the teaching. You might be listening with your ears, but not your heart. You might be listening to critique rather than to let it sink in and change and transform you. And I pray that, that there would be a hundred percent of a ratio of people listening and, and hearing. But this man in humility said, I need help. I need help. And so Philip began speaking to him. And, he, and it says there in Acts chapter eight, from this passage in Isaiah 53, and on through the law and the prophets, he taught this man about Jesus, that it was about Jesus. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. This psalm here, that is part of that book that speaks of Jesus, this Hebrews 10, five through seven, is the written contract of the Messiah right before he hops into the little, you know, baby chamber. <laughs> he has this written contract check laid out where he engaged to secure our salvation. One man said, so complete is the inspiration of all that was written, so great the authority of the Psalms that what David says is really what Christ then and there said. Is that amazing? Is that amazing? Verse 8, previously saying, Hebrews 10, 8, sacrifice and offering, burnt offering and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them. Third phrase that we're going to close with is that Jesus says, not only do I have a body that's prepared, show that I'm a real person here, not only is there a scroll, everything's written of me, that speaks of an eternal plan. But I've come to do your will. There was a will, even in Jesus, becoming flesh. An expressed purpose. Jesus is clear about his purpose. Not long after you read of Jesus in the manger, you read of him being a 12-year-old boy. You know, in, in Jerusalem, celebrating the feast. And you guys know the story that Joseph and Mary start heading back home and, and they can't find Jesus as he's there. Uh, found in the temple, reasoning and listening to the intelligentsia, the smart people. And they come back and said, where have you been? Don't you know we've been looking for you? And what does Jesus say? He says, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they didn't understand the statement that he spoke to them. What Jesus was saying as a 12-year-old boy was, hey, mom, dad, you got to know now, I've got a purpose. I've got to fulfill my father's will. And it says that Mary began to ponder those things in her heart on her walk back to Nazareth. The will of the father. Sending the son for redemption. You know, in closing, you probably know the story of the Garden of Eden. I'm not going to get into it except that the world was made in pristine perfection. It was good. It was shalom, man. It was peace. And, and Adam was given a contract, 
a covenant was made that, hey, you're welcome to stay here as long as you want. You can enjoy things here. Just enjoy it. We're going to get to be together. We're going to walk together in the cool of the day. But here's the thing. If you want to stay here, don't do that. And Adam failed on his part of the covenant. And as a result, death entered into the world. A sacrifice had to be made to cover Adam's sin and Adam and Eve's sin. They were cast out of the garden and, and angels were placed there with flaming swords so they wouldn't get back in. But beautifully, even in the garden, mercy was coupled with judgment. And throughout the Old Testament, mercy is always coupled with judgment. You see Noah, not long after that, being, finding favor with God by the grace of God. Noah is called to tell people that judgment is coming on the world for sin. But if you do this, if you come here, you'll be saved. I don't need a boat. I don't believe in rain. I don't need you or nobody, they told Noah. But even then, mercy was coupled with judgment. And then another man was brought onto the scene who was to be called the second Adam. When God essentially says, let's try this again. I'm going to send my own son and let's see how he obeys. And he proves in his walk that nobody else could do it but God alone. And it was there on the cross that Jesus showed that mercy is coupled with judgment. Just before Jesus went to the cross, he said in the Garden of Gethsemane, if there's any other way for the sins of the world to be paid for, if there's any other way than me going to the cross, please, like now would be a good time to set that plan out. And then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. A man named Augustus Toplady want that last name real bad, was an Anglican cleric and a hymn writer. He was uh, uh, an opponent of John Wesley, but uh, labored hard for the kingdom, and he wrote the hymn, Rock of Ages. But he also wrote this, that it's not in the labors of my hands that can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Jesus himself said, if there's any other way, let's do it. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he went to the cross. You guys, there's no other way. Galatians tells us if there was any other way for our sins to be pardoned, for our conscience to be cleansed, then Jesus died in vain. And so the Holy Spirit has been here this morning with you, convicting you of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And the Holy Spirit has laid out for you that from the beginning of time, there was a plan for you to be forgiven of your sins. And it culminated in the Son taking on a body prepared for him, coming in the fulfillment of prophecies of the scroll and coming to do the will of God. One man said that, that Jesus' coming to do his will was the execution of a saving purpose. Have you taken hold of that saving purpose? I'm not asking, have you done your religious vows? What I'm saying is, have you surrendered? Have you surrendered? Have you laid down all your righteousness, which is like filthy rags? And have you let Jesus place upon you his righteousness? In him, there was no deceit. There was no sin. 
There were no impurities. He was truly the spotless lamb that was slain. My friend wrote that song, Born to die that I might live. You took upon you all my sin and paid a debt you didn't owe. Now you call me your own. In God's grace and his mercy, he's brought us here this morning for maybe our last chance to hear this message or a message like it. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed this afternoon. Recently had a friend uh, die a couple weeks ago in Albany, um, a pilot whose wing just fell off his plane and, and he died. <laughs> and I'm sure he had plans for that evening. You're not guaranteed this afternoon. And the Bible tells us that behold, today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. But come and humble yourself before God. Humble yourself before God and confess that you are a sinner. And just receive. Just through believing, just receive his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and what he's done for you. Receive that, yes, he took on a body. He took on a body. He came to fulfill the, the words of the Bible that I couldn't fulfill. He came to do the will of God. He came willingly. Jesus says, no one takes my life for me. I willingly lay it down. Contrast that with the sheep who were drugged to the altar. He willingly laid his life down that his perfect blood could, full, could forgive you of your sin. Leviticus says that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Have you received that atonement for the soul, that washing? The Bible also refers to it as a, a ransom price paid. Have you had the ransom price paid so that you could be freed from sin and death? Let's go ahead and bow our head and close our eyes and just right now where you're at, the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you. You've been shown just your sin and, and how you've fallen short of God's glory. You would realize today that your conscience has not been cleansed. That your sins have not been atoned for. And perhaps God's brought you here today by his grace to hear this message that you could respond that you could respond to the one who took on flesh the Bible says that when he took on flesh in John chapter 1 that his own didn't receive him his own didn't receive him may that not be said here today may you just sense his love and and may you sense my love in communicating it to you. Think of the shedding of blood. Think of when you've seen blood spilled, perhaps your own blood. Think of how that life is in the blood. And think of how Jesus spilled his blood for you, for you. And just right now where you're at, you can respond to that 
sacrifice. Right now where you're at, if you sense God is talking to you, why don't you just lift your hand up right now where you're at? Say, Rory, I think God's talking to me. I want to respond to him. I've been trying to have my sins atoned by doing a lot of religious stuff and going here and paying that and really doing this or that hard or well. But it's time for me to rest in what he has already done. Is there anybody here today that would say that? You sense Jesus just gently knocking on the door of your heart. He says, if any man would open that door, I'll come into him. I'll dine with him and he with me. Anybody at all? You just respond. It's not raising your hand that saves you. It's just responding to the call of God, the love of God. We're going to come to the communion table this morning and take the cup and the bread. And when you go back to your seat, you can just ponder and consider Jesus taking on flesh, taking on that body that had been prepared for him, coming to do the will of God, laying his life down that we might be saved. And you can thank him while you take the cup and the bread. You can thank him for his blood that was shed and his body that was broken for your sins. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.